0: Long, And um, we, we, um, we want Uni Fellowship to be a place that is um, just as you're excelling in your primary school um, teaching studies or your music studies or law or engineering um, and getting to a point where you're thinking really deeply and seriously and professionally about how to do those things for a lifetime. We want to help you do the same when you think about things to do with spirituality and religion and God, especially if you're a Christian. If you're a christian it would be a real pity to be extremely proficient and deep and wise and well thought out in an area of tertiary study to do with the things of this world but then to not really have been gone deep and and be thought out and explored the rich things of god and his ways and his purposes and we really want to help you do that Um, but for anybody whether they're a christian or not or they don't kind of really know then it still is an opportunity I think it's still important to, um, to think about uh, meaning, purpose, morality, uh, life, life after death, spirituality. These are important issues. As the old meme puts it, science tells you uh, how to make a dinosaur out of uh, genetic uh, DNA and mosquito blood. But arts tells you whether you should or not. <laughs> um, there, are, there are things that maybe science doesn't tell you, there are things that maybe arts doesn't tell you. We could similarly say religion tells you what the point of view and the dinosaur and everything else is. What's it all about? You know, we, We've got to think about these things. And so it's really great to have you here and to be with us making the most of that. Across this whole semester, we're looking at Isaiah, um, this great mountain of a book in the Old Testament part of the Bible, the part of the Bible that Christians share together with Jews um, as Scripture. And um, to really make the most of this... Um, You know, it would be great to have you come back and join us for more of our events across the semester as we look especially at the first 40 chapters, big section, kind of half of Isaiah. A real way you could make the most of it is come back and join with us week after week at these events. Um, You could also go back to some of the events we have recordings for you might have missed. We put them all on our website, on our podcast, and so you can go back and listen to those you missed. Um, uh, And also, you could actually read the book of Isaiah for yourself, and in fact, that could really be one of the first things to do, is um, if you're doing history or something, you'll read primary sources of Tacitus or Pliny or whoever. Um, In the same way, you can read this primary source and actually, for yourself, read this this holy text and think about it, dwell upon it. You'll get more out of it that way. So I encourage you to to take advantage of all that kind of stuff. And I guess just at least for tonight, um, listening along with a paper Bible, or you could just Google Isaiah and follow along on your phone Um, then then that'll that'll help you out tonight. If we haven't met, my name's Mikey. Um, I did study um, arts at UTAS many, many years ago, but now I work as um, a staff member alongside this this work, the Uni Fellowship of Christians, employed by AFES that employs evangelists to work with student groups like the Uni Fellowship across Australia. Let's have a look then at Isaiah chapters 24, 25, 26 and 27. We're going to look across a big section um, uh, in the Isaiah 20s. And as a way of getting us into this section, um, let me start like this. Christianity, Christian faith and religion, um, is not fully explained or understood if you only think of Christianity as a, a spiritual belief, as salvation for an individual in some kind of one-to-one way. If you think of Christianity as just a spiritual Private, spiritual, personal thing, a spiritual app, um, then you haven't fully grasped Christianity. Christianity is not a personal religion only. There is this communal dimension to Christianity. And it is such a great blessing to be together. Um, Christians want to be together because we see part of the expression of our religion and our spirituality to be in community, relationship with God, but relationship with those whom, uh, who are the people of God, who've been saved by God. So there's a social fellowship dimension to Christianity. It's the salvation of the people of God, the family of God. But more than that, Christianity isn't not just a private, personal thing, nor just a communal thing in a kind of informal way, that it's like a a movement or a voluntary society or an organisation or a network or something. Um, It is that, but Christianity is more than simply a, a loose network or movement that ultimately Christianity is interested in humanity as a whole, in human society, in human civilization, organization. And so a metaphor that runs through the Bible that we see in these chapters is the idea of the city. The city is used as kind of the work that God is building in the world, the city of God. And we see a city of humanity, a crumbling city under the judgment of God, and then a, a city of God that he's building that is humans in relationship together. It's like... Uh, Human society at its best, human institutions and civilization and relationships, thriving in relationship to God and relationship to others. Now, at this point, it's important not to misunderstand Christians. It's not that Christians are saying that our goal is to take over the government and make Australia um, a a Christian religious um, nation. Or something like that. And that eventually our goal is to somehow domino across the world and take over all the, the nations and politics of the world. In fact, there are a bunch of things in Scripture that point us in the direction of saying there needs to be a distinction and a separation between spirituality and religion and, and uh, the church. And then on the other hand, government and, and all these kinds of things. So, so no, no, we're not thinking about what's called theocracy or Christians controlling politics and imposing Bible law on everybody. That's not my point. But rather what I'm trying to help us think about, and, and as we get into this, this section of Isaiah, it's about what the vision of Christianity is ultimately. That, that you can think of Christianity as a little thing, a little private thing, a little informal thing, a little rural or suburban, or suburban thing, a little huddle. Um, and, and that sometimes Christianity can seem to be sort of wary of the big world, the, um, the big cities, the big nations of the world, that we can't cope with it somehow, we're scared of it, and so we run and hide in our little Christian huddles, little Christian subcultures, that we only interact with each other about Christian stuff and then maybe throw our rocks at the world, get angry at the world and, 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 and um, throw our little um, Christian rocks, um, saying, oh, that's bad, that's naughty, we don't like that, that's the problem with the world, these kinds of things. But against this vision, the vision of Isaiah, the vision of the Bible, the theology of Isaiah, is that God is the God of the whole world. And that God is building his people, his city, as Isaiah frames it, not just a little network or a little informal village or or, or something, but it's it's his civilization, it's his people, that ultimately the purpose goes beyond this world, to salvation and judgment for the whole wide world. And so that Christians see their Christianity as relating to everything, it's not just private, it's not just informal, and it's not even just controlling politics or something. It's bigger than that. It's about God's ways ruling over people and their whole lives and having an influence over people and their whole lives beyond this world into eternity. And so was Christian study at UTAS or train in an apprenticeship or work in a law firm or establish a music career and get a record deal or um, as we do our assignments build our families, uh, vote in our elections, and so on and so forth. Christians see the world as God's world, see the future as a future that God is in charge of, and live out their lives with those things in mind. What I hope for the future it is. And we're going to see that in Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27. It's been called the Isaianic Apocalypse, Isaiah's apocalypse, Isaiah's book of Revelation. You might know about the book of Revelation in the New Testament, this huge big book of future prophecies and scary, spooky, enormous, immense, cosmic things. Well, here's Isaiah's kind of version of that. In fact, some of the the sentences throughout Isaiah 24, 25, 26, 27, um, actually pick up, uh, get picked up by Jesus' um, famous um, Mount of Olives um, apocalypse and the book of Revelation, they pick up some of the phrases to describe the end of the world, where everything's headed, the big picture that God has for for planet Earth. In the structure of Isaiah, we've just had a section from chapter 13 to 23, which is a series of direct words from God to different nations around the nation of Israel, around the Middle East. God speaks to Egypt, and God speaks to Moab, and um, and Babylon, and and, and Israel and Judah, and He does that twice, sort of thing. You get to these two cycles in Isaiah 30 to 13 to 20, and then 20 to 23 that kind of loop around in a this-worldly way. You're doing this wrong. You're oppressing people here. You're violent in these ways. You're superstitious and idolatrous, and then Isaiah 24 and following is like a third loop, but this time it becomes more symbolic. It no longer names Egypt and Cush and Tyre and Moab and Israel and Jerusalem so much. It zooms back and actually begins to then talk in a more symbolic way of cities. The city that is ruined and the city that is strong. The city that will be destroyed and the city that will be saved. This is where Isaiah says, hey, look, yeah, more than just private personal life and more than just things in this world and the politics and the, the dramas and the diplomacy of this world is God's eternal purposes. Where is your life going? What are you working towards Ultimately. It's big stuff. And it falls in two rough sections that we'll look at during our time. And as we finish up, they've got a little question SMS thing there. And so there'll be some space for questions, either SMS or just hands up after the, um, the sermon tonight. So the two sections are firstly, the ruined city, the city of destruction. And then secondly, the strong city, the city of salvation. First then, the ruined city the city of destruction. One of the ways to look at this world, Hobart, Australia, Indonesia, China, Japan, the United States, Russia, Afghanistan, the United Kingdom, France, one way to look at this world from God's point of view is to look down from God's point of view through God's eyes and understand the guilt, the evil, the corruption of a rebellious world that have turned their back on God and the doom that comes upon this world that has turned its back on God. That is, although there are lots of good things in the world that we can be thankful for and enjoy and delight in, and that's good and right, we mustn't be naive or deliberately um, uh, ignore reality so that we, everything is just rosy. Everything's coming up roses, and it's all um, just progress from one triumph to the next. Um, um, everything, everyone's basically good. Everyone really means well. Um, and I don't know how many of you attempted to see things that way. It's, it's increasingly hard to do that, I think. There are occasionally seasons in human culture where things seem fairly cool and people begin to be optimistic. Certainly at the end of the 19th century in uh, the English-speaking world, there was a lot of optimism and hope for the future. Hope for how humans would get better and freer and wiser and more educated and more peaceful and more united, and then we got whacked by two great world wars in the 20th century. And those late 19th century optimisms looked increasingly ridiculous. Perhaps in the same way now, we're in a season where it's hard to be super optimistic, um, given the things we see in the world. Um, You know, here we are watching the people in Afghanistan, as we talked about, go back into a cycle, Um, of rule by the Taliban, when we thought that had been dealt with by the Americans invading after they'd armed them back in the 1970s during their fight against communism, does it ever end? (laughs) It seems like it just goes round and round. Um, But when we do feel a bit hopeless about the world, we are seeing something true. We are being wise. The overly optimistic person about human nature, about human potential and human civilization is being naive. That humans are guilty. Humans are twisted up. And so the world we live in is an evil world. It's a runaway world, running away from God. My notes here say, as you walk around Utah's... But (laughs) it's not really happening so much, is it? You're just zooming in. But uh, (laughs) let's just say you walked around Utah's... um, along with the coyotes and the tumbleweeds rolling by. (laughs) Um, But as we walk around Hobart, as we walk around our suburbs or or our, our rural areas, and if we were to travel when borders open up and visit Melbourne, or if international borders opened up and we visit Singapore, London, wherever we'd go, we would see people in rebellion against God. Different ways, different cultures, different expressions, but we'd see people in rebellion against God. People hurting each other, lying to each other, People living with regrets for their failures and guilt. People justifying themselves and explaining things away and blaming others. People rallying together in groups and then pushing others outside that group and demonising them. People taking what they can get at the expense of others. Now again, I, there are, it's not only that. <laughs> There's lots of good in the world too, but we would see this. And this what we're talking about here is the dark side. <laughs> And as the Bible speaks about the world, it speaks of the world God made, the precious world, the good world, the good creation, but also a guilty world that God calls to account. And we're in it. We're in this rebellious world. God calls you and I to account for our rejection of him, for our lives of folly, meanness, selfishness, evil. So let's have a look at this at the start of Isaiah 24 there. Isaiah describes this, um, this judgment, desolation, devastation. See, Isaiah 24... The Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He'll ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It'll be the same for the priest as for the people, for the master as for the servant, for the mistress as for the maid, for the seller as for the buyer, for the borrower as for the lender, for the debtor as for the creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, Exalted of the earth languish there will be a equality at this point a laying level there's no white male privilege here but all will be held accountable according to what they've done we all share some responsibility for a broken world you and me I just finished watching a great movie on Apple TV. I'm not sure if you're much of a TV show watcher, let alone an Apple TV watcher. I got a new MacBook and they just gave it to me for free for 12 months, so um, there I am. I'm not talking about Ted Lasso, although I did watch that as well. Um, But there's another show called The Morning Wars that um, is about like a a morning TV show. You know those kind of like you turn on the morning television and there's two people on a couch talking about a dog that can ride on a skateboard and then doing the weather and then they'll bring in some author who's released a self-help book. You know those kind of shows? Um, It's about one of those sorts of shows, but one of the key um, key hosts, the male host, has just been exposed for a series of um, sexual harassment charges and is ousted, and it's about then the fallout of this scandal. It's a really interesting show because it looks at that kind of Me Too movement from lots of different directions, Uh, from the extremely predatory, twisted type of person, right through to the person who honestly thinks, like, yeah, they were a bit out of control, but it's You know, they meant well. Um, And and it exposes how, in many different ways, a whole organisation can share in guilt in a whole range of different ways. It's a really interesting study of of the different ways we can play a part in a problem, from really bad ways to innocent but still kind of complicit. And we could look at many examples of that, almost any study of uh, how Nazism takes root in Germany, for example, or the disaster at Chernobyl um, with the nuclear power plant and its effects in the Ukraine and beyond. Um, And in any of these, we can see how a range of people were involved in a range of ways, really serious and blatant through to more casual and and involved. We all, in the same way, you see, share our burden, our guilt, our part to play in this broken, evil world. Some in really wicked, evil, deliberate, defiant ways. Some in more passive ways swept up complicit ways, but we all share a part in what the Bible calls sin, rebellion against God. This chapter, chapter 24, and its symbolic tone, captures the themes from the very start of the Bible. It creates these echoes, these vibes of Genesis 3:17 to 19, and the curse upon the world and the thorns and the thistles and returning to dust, from dust you are and to dust you'll return, in painful toil. Or Genesis 5:29, or six, verses six and seven, a curse on the earth. It evokes those kinds of passages here. Isaiah 24, verse 4. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. they disobeyed its laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, the earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. A curse sits upon the world, the whole world, In fact, even spiritual powers beyond the world. 24 verse 21, the Lord will punish the powers in the skies above, the heavens above. And the kings on the earth below, or a reference to Leviathan in 27 verse 1, hints at great spiritual evils as well. Now, day to day, we've got to make do. We've got to eat enough protein and vitamins and... Hydrate, exercise and sleep and maintain your relationships and get through, stay cheerful, live your life. We're still just finite creatures. Day to day we have to just live our lives. That's our lot under the sun. Um, It's good and right and healthy just to make do. That's what we do as humans. It's not good or healthy to circle around depressing things all the time and, and, and dwell, ruminate upon them. You know, as like have invented the word now since COVID of doom scrolling on your phone, just reading the latest terrible things, you know. Um, uh, th- th- there's nothing good that comes from that sort of just being up in your attic writing grim, despairing poetry um, forever, um, sighing <laughs> in, in despair. Um, and there's nothing noble about being in misery all the time. But... It's possible to overcorrect the, you know, the other way and, and just be cheerful all the time and never think about the problems and change the channel whenever anything depressing comes on and, and brush aside the problems, smooth them over, look on the bright side of life because every cloud has a silver lining and every espresso has a golden crema and, and so we should all just um, just, just cheer up and, and, and have fun, happy-go-lucky. That, that's not right either. Because there is evil in the world. There is guilt in the world. And if I block my ears to the evil in the world, in society, in family, in myself, then I can't be a... I, can't, I won't repent. I won't make peace. I won't seek justice. I won't reconcile. I'll be one of those people who are complicit. Maybe not as the evil, corrupt, nasty person, but just as a person who's closing my eyes and... and make, do you see the issue? There's got to be times and seasons when we do stop and ponder deep stuff like Isaiah 24. Heavy stuff. For Isaiah talks about judgment of God upon the world, the decay of human civilization cut off from its maker in rebellion. Verse 7, the new wine dries up and the wine vine withers. All the merrymakers groan, the gaiety of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the revellers has stopped, the joyful harp is silent, no longer do they drink wine with a song, the beer is bitter to its drinkers, the ruined city lies desolate, the, the entrance to every house is barred, in the streets they cry out for wine, all joy turns to gloom, all gaiety is banished from the earth, the city is left in ruins, its gates battered to pieces. So it will be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Ruin. Devastation. Nothing. Evokes, like the very beginning of the Bible, an earth formless and empty. An uncreation. An uncreated world. It's one of the ways the Bible talks about the judgment of God. It can, the Bible can use judicial language, curse language, as we've already seen. It can use um, uh, uh, sort of metaphors of, of military invasion or disease or anger. But it can also speak of ruin, decay, death. The author of um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the other Narnia books, C.S. Lewis, um, also wrote a lesser known series of books, the Ransom Trilogy, which are science fiction books. So in addition to um, The Magician's Nephew and The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe and The Horse and His Boy and all that, there's also, I can't even remember, the Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Um, they're darker and more philosophical, but they're, they're good reads. If you're into sci-fi and philosophy and religious philosophy and sci-fi, then check out C.S. Lewis's books. And, and in the second one, Perilandra, it's a really interesting book because it's, it's, a, it's a retake on the Garden of Eden, except on Mars, I think it is, um, or Venus, one of those. And it's, um, it's another planet and another kind of Adam and Eve, and it raises the question, what could have happened? What could have been different? It's an interesting one. Um, I've got an interesting ending, I think, a very clever ending. Um, but in it, it describes a picture of a human being giving in to sin and the judgment of God, the collapse of the human personality. Uh, the main character at Ransom is looking at uh, another character, Weston, who has become possessed by an evil spirit. And here's his reflection as he looks at, at, at Weston. Up until that moment, whenever Ransom had thought of hell he pictured the lost souls as still being human. Now, as the frightful abyss which parts ghosthood from manhood yawned before him. So he's looking at this this guy, Weston, and as he looks at him, it's like ghosthood and manhood are just splitting apart. Pity was almost swallowed up in horror. Pity was almost swallowed up in horror. In the unconquerable revulsion of the life within him, from the positive and self-consuming death. Looking at this man, if the remains of Weston were, at such moments, speaking through the lips of this unman, then Weston was not now a man at all. The forces which had begun, perhaps years ago, to eat away at his humanity had now completed their work. The intoxicated will which had been slowly poisoning the intelligence and the affection had now at last poisoned itself And the whole psychic organism had fallen to pieces. Only a ghost was left, an everlasting unrest, a crumbling, a ruin, an odour of decay. And this, thought Ransom, might be my destination. It's a chilling description. We mustn't picture when people come under the judgment of God, people at their most noble and best and charming and, and... and kind we must instead rather see that when the judgment of God comes finally in the final judgment of hell that all the preserving mercies of God that preserves a person in something of a kindness and a love so that uh, fathers give good gifts to their children and even tax collectors and sinners love those who love them and that there can be uh, all the, the moments of kindness we still see in this world all those things pulled away and we have the human sinner handed over to the powers of evil and sin at their most grotesque and crumbled and wicked, ruined. The effects of evil on humanity are terrible and awful. Now, on the one hand... it's right to grieve and mourn and we see that here in isaiah a grieving and a mourning verse 16 from the ends of the earth we hear singing glory to the righteous one but i said i waste away i waste away woe to me the treacherous betray the treacherous betray terror and pit snare await you O people of the earth jesus himself mourned over jerusalem longing to gather it, if it were willing. There is a tragedy and a sadness and a waste and a loss in people persisting in sin and coming under the judgment of God. It's awful. It's a horrible thing to ponder. The judgment of God and eternal judgment. And yet on the other hand, at the same time throughout the Bible, even in Jesus' teaching, while we both speak of of mourning at the judgment of God and of death, also... The Bible says God is good, God is right, God is just, God is fair. And he's right to bring judgment. And when he finally comes to judge the world, he will be seen to be right. And so we even have this description here of praising God for his justice. 24 verse 14. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the islands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. Praising God for his justice. That it's, it's saying... It is right for evil to have an end. It's right for the oppressor to be brought low. It's right for all the unresolved court cases and and unknown soldiers and unmourned victims and um, unexposed corruptions to finally be brought to light and brought under judgment. It's easiest when you think about it that way. That it's a good thing for justice to finally come. And God can do it without it giving way to human revenge and rage. Where human revolutions, the uh, uh, the people rise up and oppose the oppressor, and then become the oppressors, don't they? That's the problem with human revolutions. Um, whereas God can actually put an end once for all, and that's something to rejoice in. Even if it can be hard emotionally, when you know when I think of those close to me being outside of Christ in His mercy, it's it's, it's hard to make sense. I, there's a point where I let go and trust God with those things and go, God, you know what's right. And one day, when all things are made clear, I'll see it too. One writer on Isaiah, Alec Mottier, says, these verses, Isaiah 24, have an almost eerie quality, as if we could see the few survivors picking their way through the ruins, singing to the righteous one as they go. Why does judgment come? Disobedience to God. 24 verse 5. The earth is defiled by the people. They've disobeyed the laws and violated the statutes. Pride. 25 verse 10. Uh, The hand of the Lord will rest on the mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him. The straw trampled down the manure, they'll be spread out their hands in it. The swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite the cleverness of their hands. He'll bring down their high fortified walls and lay them low. Or 26 verse 5, pride again there. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. There's a stubborn blindness that brings the judgment of God. 26 verse 10, though grace is shown to the wicked, they don't learn, earn, learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and don't regard the majesty of the Lord. Or 27 verse 10, the fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, they lie down, the strips the latch bare. When the twigs are dry, they're broken off and women come and make fires. For this is a people without understanding so their maker has no compassion on them and their creator shows no favour. And oppression and murder, 26 verse 6 or 26 verse 21, the Lord coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. For all our good things, all our contributions to love and genius and beauty and mercy and, and wisdom. Human life and human strength and human wisdom and human culture and human society and human civilization is, is channeled in a, in, a, in a canal in a stream of rebellion against our maker. Everything we do, even the good things, are swept in that direction of still being rebellious to our maker. And so we build a whole culture, a whole existence that is guilty and futile ultimately. The world city, human civilization without God, not paying attention to his glory and his majesty is ultimately ruined. And so, this first section of the sermon, of this part of Isaiah, asks us then is that where my whole life is invested? Is that where I put down my roots? Is that where I'm earning my degrees and building my houses and setting my hope? Is that what I really love? And care about? Am I a citizen of the city of this world? City of sin, the ruined city. My career and my friendships and my energy and my loves, this world. It's a shocking warning. But then Isaiah turns in the second uh, half of tonight's sermon to the strong city an invitation for hope. An invitation for good things, for salvation. Even in that really dark chapter 24, there are these little glimmers of hope. Barely noticeable, they're so small. But in 24 verse 6, there is a very few who are left at the very end of 24 verse 6. 24 verse 13, there is an olive tree beaten and some gleanings are left. A few gleanings of grapes a few olives fallen to the ground verse 23 there will be still people in zion and jerusalem and their elders gloriously with the lord the lord rules and reigns in judgment but preserves a remnant even from a wicked world We get shown this amazing banquet that God has set for those who come and trust in him. 25 verse 6. On the mountain of the Lord Almighty, he'll prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. All peoples. See that? All peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. Fellowship with God. Relationship with God. Feasting and delighting with God. Celebrating with God. Food and pleasure and joy and delight. Verse 7. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Again, in 2619, we read that the dead will live. 2619, their bodies will rise. you who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Now, that's some of the most explicit parts of the Old Testament talking about the resurrection hope, along with Ezekiel uh, 37, is it? Daniel 12. Here we get these wonderful prophecies, explicit prophecies of life after death, new life. The hope of God is freedom from evil, oppression, war, Death, the devil, and the possibility to live afresh, a new life, a resurrection life that will last forever in joy and goodness and godliness and peace. This is the invitation. Come to this feast. Share in this new life, this forever life. If you would just trust in the Lord. In that day, verse 9 of chapter 25, 25-9, in that day they'll say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Jesus picks up these promises and spells them out so clearly that he is the one who comes to bring this banquet, this um, Life, this rolling back of the shroud. They're giving birth to the dead. Come across to John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5. John 5, verse 24. Jesus teaching here. And he says, John 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Isn't that cool? So he says, as soon as you believe in Jesus, you've already begun eternal life. I can't wait to go to heaven. Well, you're already there if you trusted in Jesus. Eternal life has begun. You're just living out this period, which is rough, but then it continues on for all eternity. So that death is just, what does the New Testament call it? Falling asleep. It's just going to sleep. And to then wake up. To continue the next day, that will be the joyful day forever and ever. You, you have eternal You have passed from death to life. Verse 25. I tell you the truth. The time is coming, and has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. In verse um, 5. Verse 28. He picks up the same theme again. In verse 28, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. And those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In chapter 11, he says, as he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11 of John's Gospel, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Trust in God. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Enter the strong city. Come to the mountain feast. Enter eternal life. If chapter 24 describes the desolate city, chapter 26 describes the strong city, the saved city. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates and the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep, be keep in perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Human life, community, fellowship, civil, civilization built on trust in the Lord, relationships of love and peace, goals and priorities shaped by the Lord. It's so different to the corruption and desolation of the ruined city. This city is full of feasting and celebration, and uh, all its thinking and doing and planning is honourable and glorious. It's not just a worship service forever in heaven, but human life and society properly ordered and made perfect. 26 verse 12, Lord, you establish peace for us, 26, 12. All that we have accomplished, you've done for us. O Lord, our other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead, they live no more. Those departed spirits don't rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin you wiped all our memory of them. You've enlarged the nation, O oh Lord. You've enlarged the nation. You've gained glory for yourself. You've exalted, extended all the borders of the land. You've brought a people to peace. Throughout chapter twenty-six, he flits between what will happen and the kind of current experience of people waiting for it to happen. So he kind of points ahead and says, "Here's what's going to be like. It'll be awesome." And then, "Oh, I can't wait for it to happen." And so it's saying, how are you going to live now? Are you going to live fully a part of the ruined city, living for nothing more than this world? Or are you going to live for the strong city, for Zion, for salvation, even while you live in Babylon, the ruined city? Are you going to live for Christ, even though you're in this world still? Hold on, while you're here in Hobart, while you study at UTAS, while you work your job or look for a job or... Are you going to be someone who is who is living for Christ and his purposes wherever you find yourself? 26 verse 7 describes it so well. The way to live as we wait. The path of the righteous is level. O oh, upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. 26 verse 8. Yes. Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Walking in God's ways, listening to God's word, dwelling upon it, sticking to it. Even when I'm at the barrel and the party and the the club, as the speech and the gossip and the jokes go on around me and it's tempting to just join in and laugh along when there's the temptations to use my body in violence or in sexual immorality in the complexities of relationships managing anger or ambition walking God's ways and long for God Delight in the Lord, even through sufferings, even through patient waiting. Live for him, not for riches. Live for him, not for popularity. Live for him, not for getting ahead. And what are those things? They're they're little things. They're good things, but they're little things. I mean, matchbox cars are cool too. Like, they're good. Lego's good. They're good things. Ambition is good. Popularity is good. But they're little things. Live for God. Delight in him live in this city, in this world, at Taz at Jane Franklin Hall, in, in your suburb, in your town, while being a citizen of the city to come. Now it's easy to say all that stuff, and Christian preachers say all that stuff, and Christians get used to hearing that and nodding our heads at it. But you know whether that's you or not, don't you? You know whether really when you leave church or uni fellowship events or uh, Bible study group and family devotions, you know whether you're really good with God and trusting in him and living for him or whether you're just kind of stuck in the Christian groove but you're living a double life. And in the end, it's not between you and me. It's between you and God, isn't it? Are you trusting in him? Are you at peace with him? He knows. You know. The end of this section returns to a theme that we saw in chapter five, the song of the vineyard. In chapter five, it was a failed vineyard. It was one of those startups that really didn't go as well as we hoped. I uh, just couldn't even get the grapes for the first yield of Pinot. And, and so now I've got to go back to all my angel investors. It didn't work out. Well, in chapter 27, we have the fruitful, glorious vine. Chapter 27. Verse 2, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. Guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I'm not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I'd march out against them in battle and I'd set them on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge and let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. He's even turning the briars... Into more vines to bear more grapes. (laughs) A place of shelter and refuge for the whole world. Come, refuge. Make peace with me. In those days, verse 6, In the days to come, Judah will take root, Israel will bud and blossom, and fill all the world with fruit. 27, verse 12, in that day the Lord will thresh the flowing Euphrates, the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one, and in that day a great trumpet will sound, and those who are perishing in Assyria and those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain in Jerusalem. This theme through Isaiah of a universal salvation, a blessing for the whole world, and it's picture that as God gathers his Jewish people from the world, who have failed and fallen and become like the nations, as he pulls them back, he pulls with them people from the nations themselves and saves all the earth, saves you and me, saves the peoples of the world. So Isaiah pictures how God's grace and mercy is so grand and includes others and so sweeps up, up us up in that vision of the world, that as I live my life, do my studies, get my job, have a family, manage my bank account, cope through sickness and suffering and difficulty and upheaval, I'm looking not only for continuing as a Christian, but inviting others to trust in the Lord as well. Am I looking? Are you looking? Not only to continue as a Christian, but to pray that God will give you the opportunity to invite others also to share in what you have. That might start with you actually being public as a Christian. Some of you, everyone knows you're a Christian. Everyone knows all too well that you're a Christian. You really go on about it. Good, old, good for you. Others of you, people don't know. It'd be quite a scary thing to kind of uh, be public as a Christian. It might be that is your first step. Uh, for others of you, it might actually just be knowing anybody who's not a Christian. <laughs> And it might actually be reaching beyond the boundaries of Christian social groups and friendship groups and a Christian youth group and school to instead go, well, how, how could I actually live my life in this world connected with and interested in people beyond those who already know the Lord Jesus? And this blessing and this joy and this salvation is made possible, Isaiah just hints at here, By a new Passover, a new atonement. Did you notice that in 26, verse 20, when it was read? It just captures the description of the Exodus Passover, verse 20, 26, 20. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the wrath has passed by. God will do another Passover. God will do another uh, protecting his people under the blood of the lambs. The blood of the lamb, the Lord Jesus. And so judgment will pass over. Hide under the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And atonement is how 27 verse 9 puts it. Jacob's guilt will be atoned for. God will deal with guilt so that peace can be restored once for all. Wipe away sin, shame, guilt, judgment, fear, the wrath of God, the fear of death, the power of the devil washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's the Lord's great work of salvation. That's the entry into eternal life. That's what the Lord has done. A work he's fulfilled in the cross of Christ, who atoned for our sins, the Passover lamb sacrificed, bringing us out of the ruined city into the city of salvation. Praise be the Lord. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for these amazing words, the big picture they paint, the great warnings and invitations they spell out. We pray for everyone here. We pray for each one of us that we'll see where we are, where this world is, and that we'll come to you, to you as you've come to us in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, for peace, for eternal life. Please, we ask, help us live as members of your city and share that wonderful news to others, please. We rejoice in you. Amen.